A few years back, I was working at a startup that had an enormous product catalogue that was constantly updated and people needed to search through it. And I got into a debate with a colleague of mine because the data was in MySQL and he wanted to start regularly exporting it out and shipping it across into Elasticsearch because he thought the search capabilities would be better. And I thought... That's a great idea in theory, but making that run efficiently and reliably every day was just going to be an ongoing maintenance problem that our startup didn't need. We debated it back and forth, and in the end we went ahead, and it turns out we were both right. It was painful to set up, it was never quite fast enough to be up to date, and it was reliable except on days when it wasn't, and those days just took all productivity out of the window. But it was worth it. It was a much better experience. It was painful, but it was worth it. Could it have been less painful? When you need, as so often you do, to pull data from these places, do something with it and stick it into those places, is there a good generalized solution to that problem? And that's today's topic. We're going to look at Apache Flink, which has been getting a lot of interest in this space, and it's designed to solve exactly that kind of problem. So I've pulled in Robert Metzger, who's on the PMC for Flink, and I'm going to get him to explain what Flink does and how it does it. And in this conversation, we managed to go all the way from why does Flink exist and how did he get involved to how sophisticated can you make the data processing part? What options do you have? What languages can you use? And how do you recover when the process crashes? What's its crash recovery and scalability story? and lots more. So let's talk about Flink. Let's ship some data around. I'm your host, Chris Jenkins. This is Developer Voices, and today's voice is Robert Metzger. Robert Metzger, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? Uh, good, thank you. I'm really excited to be here on the podcast to talk about Flink today. Yeah, I'm very excited to learn more about Flink because there's a lot of buzz about it, but I've never really sat down with an expert and really understood what's going on. So you can fill me in from scratch. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So let's start with your credentials. Why are you a Flink expert? How did you get into it and what do you do with it? Um, I try to keep the story as short as possible. So when I was <laughs> studying in the Technical University in Berlin in like 2012, 13 or so, I was working with a bunch of PhD students there that were building a big data system called Stratosphere that um, was about competing with Apache Hadoop. Basically, they had like a database background and thought that... Um, there's so many findings in like 30 years of database research that have not really been considered with Apache Hadoop. And they wanted to take these learnings and add them to a big data system. And um, then a few events happened. So we, so we um, open sourced this research project, donated it to the Apache Software Foundation, we started fundraising. I became a co-founder of a company called um, Data Artisans. Now it's called Reverica that um, set out to commercialize Apache Flink um, as a technology. Back when we started the company, we still intended to build a 
batch processing framework. But um, we also, it was actually an outside contribution um, to add a stream processing API on top of the engine. Because the engine, as I mentioned, is based on database principles and databases use this concept called pipeline execution, where multiple operators are running at the same time. And this sounds very much like stream processing, right? Like operators running all the time processing data. So it was actually quite easy to add an API on top um, of this engine for uh, stream processing primitives. And of course, then we added a lot more things to the engine, like checkpointing, event time and watermark support, the state backends, and so on and so forth, to make it a, let's say, real stream processor. Um and so going back to this contribution, sorry, um, was that we noticed that there was a lot more interest in um, our stream processing capabilities compared to the batch processing capabilities that Flink was okay. offering. And also to some extent, I mean, um, Apache Spark was rising very quickly at that time um, as an alternative to Hadoop. And um, I think they were, let's say, winning the race in the um, batch processing space. Okay. <clears throat> and this that is how I this is how I learned Flink and all of that because I was basically working as a student on the stuff and um started a company around it. I helped building the open source community as part of Apache and um we did a successful exit of the company to Alibaba. They are off offering Flink in their cloud product. Oh. Um and like one and a half years ago I switched to Decodable to work on making Flink more accessible as part of a stream processing platform, basically, which is okay. also based on Flink. So your entire career has been in Flink? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Are you happy with that? <laughs> um, yeah, but of course, like after, I don't know, 10 years or so almost in the same technology, you start to wonder if you also need to look left and right. But of course, I mean, Flink is... Um, a really big project, not as big as like the Linux kernel, but there are like subsystems in Flink, uh, completely different APIs and abstractions, and you can go very deep in many areas. So there's a lot of very different areas in Flink um, to work on very different problems. Yeah, any large enough project becomes a whole sub world, right? A little universe yeah. in itself. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you've raised a lot of things we need to get into, but before we get there, just for context, give me a typical example of how someone uses Flink to solve some problem. So let's say you um, have some relational database like MySQL, and you're noticing that your full-text search queries are taking too much time on that database. So you want to offload this, um, these types of queries from your transaction database into something that is more purpose-built, something like Elasticsearch. Yeah. So you would use um, um, Debezium for change data capture to follow the changes on this transactional database, then perform some joins in Flink to combine data from different tables into, let's say, one big document and then you ingest these documents into Elasticsearch. So basically you're using, and you're not using Debezium as a standalone um, um, system. You could do that and use like Kafka in between. But in this case, Debezium would run as part of a Flink connector. So there's um, connectors in Flink that are based on Debezium that allow you to follow changes um, on a transactional database. 
And um, then you can use, for example, Flink SQL to um, um, express this join uh, of multiple tables and filtering, um, whatever, aggregations. And then you use a Elasticsearch sync in Flink to write this data to um, Elasticsearch. And in effect, you have something like a continuous real-time join from multiple different tables. And whenever there's an update, you basically instantly get an update in Elasticsearch to always have your data fresh and up-to-date. Okay. So the main thing it's doing for you is, in combination with Debezium, slurping that data out from one place, a certain amount of processing to transform it as you load it into another place. I think the core of Flink is the processing. The core yeah. really is how Flink is able to do this real-time join in this particular example. There's many other examples. You can also do machine learning stuff with it. You can um, do aggregations. Um, but that's the, the core, what Flink is mostly about, like real-time stream processing. The connectors okay. are more um, a necessity to get your data in and out of Flink. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't, it's not going to do much without those. Yeah. But, but the I mean, of the project is... I mean, there are other stream processors like Kafka Streams, for example, which are only working with Kafka as a data source. But Flink is independent of data sources. Okay. How many data sources and syncs does it support? Um, Roughly. So, so I think the core project has maybe like eight-ish. And then there's probably like 20 or 30 that are in other repositories or somehow available publicly. Okay. Um, but all the important stuff is covered, like Pulsar, Kinesis, Kafka. Um, on the sync side, you can do any JDBC database. You can do um, writing to S3. You can, I mean, any file system, actually. You can monitor for changes. You can write um, to these file systems in various um, bucketing, like time-based bucketing, database bucketing, whatever. So there's a ton of options for getting your data in and out. And to be honest, if... If there is a rare case where you have like a custom system, then it's also not terribly hard to build your own um, source or sync and flink. Okay. Does it ever get used for like, <clears throat> is it always transforming the data and sending it to other places or does it ever get used just for straight reporting? Um, I mean, you can use flink. F so what do you mean with by reporting? Like, I guess what I mean is, could you have like a CSV or um, a PDF as your sync? CSV for sure. That's supported out of the box. Um, so you can write, you can write like CSV or more popular like Parquet files, for example, or you can write in the Iceberg um, formats um, to S3 or something. So you can definitely use Link also. Um, for getting your data in, in the shape that you want, like for loading your data warehouse, for example. Okay. I only ask that because I'm always thinking, like, what's the smallest possible change I could make to introduce this to a project? Ah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. In that case, I think we should dig down into how it actually works. What do I need to understand about Flink's architecture? Um, so Flink has a few basic building blocks that you use to express your workload. So the core is a data flow graph, like a set of operators, let's say a Kafka source and a CDC source, 
And then a bunch of operators like transformations, filters, aggregations, joins, and they can be arbitrarily complex. Like, trust me, they can fill entire screens if you visualize them <laughs> with like hundreds of operators, really. Um, I mean, okay, hundreds is maybe an extreme case, but like 30, 40 operators is really not unheard of. Okay. And um, you basically use one of the APIs in Flink, like the Java or Scala API or the SQL API or the Python API to build this data flow graph. So basically to define the structure of your Flink job and to define either the logic of predefined operators. So Flink has, for example, windowing operators that allow you to window data into hourly buckets or something, um, yeah. or session windows where you want to analyze, like have basically dynamic windows that are just um, have the size of a certain user activity. And um, so you define the structure and then you also define the logic of what is happening inside these operators. And then the engine knows how to execute this um, graph efficiently on a cluster of machines. So if your workload is increasing, you can um, change the number of instances, the parallelism of your job in Flink, and then you will execute this on more machines. Okay. If I, I'm just trying to think how that's going to look. So what do I do if I'm using SQL? Am I doing something like create, thing that looks like table but is actually a slurping from my sql pretty much yes so and then i um, can join to that in my from clause later exactly so basically you're defining a stream as like a table in flink sql so when you when you want to read from a number of kafka brokers or whatever like kafka clusters you create you do like a create table statement um for each of these um, data sources. So Flink SQL supports all the data, all the connectors that I've mentioned. So you can create, um, they do like whatever. If you have a Kafka's, um, topic called users, you do basically create table users, and then you define the fields in your, um, Kafka topic. And uh, let's say the data is in JSON. So you define like a JSON deserializer and then Flink knows how to read the JSON data from your Kafka topic to analyze it. So you do like a create table to expose your Kafka topic in Flink SQL. And then if you want to do, for example, a filter, you just do select star from this table. And then in the where clause, you can define your filter. Or you, select, uh, or you or you read from multiple tables and you do a join. Right. So I'm going to make you flinch again because I'm going to mention CSV again. <laughs> uh, do I also do like create table as output.csv and then insert into output table select star from? Exactly. Do, yes. It just looks that like regular yes. SQL type operations. Yes. Yes. But there's no underlying storage. The underlying storage is just outside of Flink. Exactly. Flink doesn't come with any storage. So okay. you define uh, S3 as a storage or local file system or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So the next question that raises, you say it will automatically distribute the jobs across nodes. How is that working? 
Um, so there is a central component. So when you're building this data flow representation in your, let's say Java API or in SQL, um, you're typically doing this on some kind of client instance. So either it's the uh, SQL shell that you're using, or it's a Java application that you're implementing and, um, the Java application knows how to connect to um, what is called the job manager process of Link. So the job manager is the central component that is coordinating the execution of a Flink job or actually also multiple Flink jobs. So Flink supports both single or multiple jobs on a job manager. And the job manager is create and the job manager is creating a um, distributed representation of this um, data flow graph and um, is basically splitting out. So if you have like Kafka sources, some join operator and a CSV sync, um, then it will create multiple instances of these operators. Like if you're, if you're running this on 10 machines, then it will create 10 Kafka sources, 10 join operators and um, 10 CSV syncs. And um, the work will then get distributed from the job manager to the so-called task managers. So task managers are the workers that are running on all the cluster nodes. And right. as you add or remove task managers, um, you can scale up or scale down the resources that are available for processing. And can you do that dynamically? Can you just throw more machines at it? Yeah, that's a feature that we've added um, in Flink. I don't know, like one thirteen or 14, uh, I don't know, maybe earlier. Um, so it is a feature that has been added to Flink, let's say recently. Um, for a given <laughs> value like of recent. Two, two years ago or so. Okay. Um, that allows you, it's called the reactive mode in Flink, and it basically allows you to add or remove machines and Flink will dynamically grow and shrink. Okay. And that's pretty neat <laughs> if you're using something like um, Kubernetes horizontal pod autoscalers. So Kubernetes will yeah. monitor like CPU usage. And if it goes too high, it will just add more machines. You can do the same with like EC2 autoscaling groups or something. Okay, that makes sense. And is there, I mean, I'm just trying to figure out this SQL interface. Is there something like the notion of a temporary table? Can I join two things, stick them into one logical table while I think about how I want to select that data out. Um, so you don't have to worry too much about the representation, um, like how Flink is representing um, a table or a join um, in your SQL statement. So what? So Flink will, of course, internally, so it really depends on what you're doing. So if you do a, let's go back to the example that we had earlier, some user table, um, and you do like a select star, and um, let's say you're reading, you're reading from Kafka, you're filtering, and you're writing to Kafka. Then it's really, data is just flowing through the system. It's never um, materialized in the system. It's just um, passing through, and we are filtering out some, like if you do like a, insert into target, select star from uh, users where X uh, smaller 10 or whatever, then it will filter out all the elements um, based on that, on that predicate. Okay. And, but if you, but of course, if you do something like a join and your input, 
So let's say you have this user table and you want to enrich some information in this user table from a database table. So yeah. you, you have this um, stream of user data and um, you have a MySQL database that contains, um, let's say, the address of each user. And um, you could do something like a database query for every user, like a query on MySQL for every user that comes. But of course, you would bombard your MySQL server with um, uh, queries for every incoming record in the stream processor. Your stream yeah. processor would actually be um, slowed down to the speed of your MySQL server. And that's not what you want for a massively parallel system like Flink. Yeah. So what you do instead is that you um, do change data capture on this MySQL table. So you um, do an initial snapshot of all the data in the MySQL table, load it into Flink state, and then you subscribe to further updates from that table. So whenever like a user address is changing, we are updating this data in Flink state and um, Flink can then do the look, look up locally in its um, state backend. Okay. So you don't have to do any network access for this particular state lookup. It will just be in the local RoxyB instance um, of uh, of the task manager. Okay. Yeah. So that's a that's a lookup join in um, in Flink SQL, and um, that's where Flink SQL will decide that one side of the like one side of the join, the side with the address information from MySQL, needs to be stored in Flink state but the user data that is flowing um, will not be persisted. But there are cases where you're joining two tables and you're materializing both sides of the, of the join. Um, and whenever any of the two inputs are updating, you produce an output result, like an output event that will send downstream. And then the sync has to decide what to do with it. Okay. That, that leads naturally to two questions. One's about time and windowing. But first, you're saying that um, like for the address thing, you're maintaining what is a, essentially a local read-only replica of MySQL's address table, yes. right? Yeah. How is that state management working in Flink? Because you said Flink doesn't do any storage. So what's um, going on? Yeah, it is, okay, I was lying <laughs> to you. Uh, let's just say it was for the sake of making it easy to understand. Um, yeah, we, can, we can separate between logical and physical storage, sure. <laughs> um, so um, Flink the project itself doesn't provide any permanent storage like a MySQL server um, to persist your data in your um, database tables. But Flink um, needs a lot of temporary storage, and um, that's what we generally call state. So state can be as small and simple as the current Kafka offset that you're reading from, and it can be as big as um, your entire uh, address table from MySQL. So we have customers that are using Flink with like 250 gigs of state um, in their in their joints, and even that is small. Like if you talk to Apple or Netflix, which are using Flink in production, they are really talking about terabytes of state that they're maintaining um, across their task managers. Okay, and um, so a lot of a lot of things that we've implemented in Flink about um, the state management because um, I think that that's also why I think we say on the website, Flink is doing stateful stream processing. So this ability to maintain state inside the operators is what makes Flink 
really interesting because if you just um without state flink would just be a system that allows you to um move data from left to right but it it cannot really maintain or build up any knowledge about the outside world so with yeah, flink you can you can basically you have like memory you know um what happened before and you can make some decisions based on what happened before like in the yeah in the case of this lookup join you know what is in the mysql table and you know that um flink is always making sure that you're not losing any data so even if you kill one of those task managers or multiple of these task managers flink is able to recover this state and um restore it for you and um you will never notice that there was any loss of state temporarily because the task manager has died okay this presumably is also the same mechanism you use to calculate aggregates that are live updating right exactly so um you can store aggregates in state yes yeah we should probably talk a little bit about this the difference here between um static data and live data because you say flink was originally built for like batch files mm -hmm. but you you can just to give it a really simple example i can say something like count star of users and i would expect that count to be gradually rising as people register on my site yeah so you have so what's what's flink's notion of a live stream of data if everything's a create table statement um or is all data in even the stuff that looks static is all data in flink considered just a stream of data coming in from an engine perspective yes so even if you are reading like if you're doing a classical batch use case you have uh, i don't know a few terabytes of data in your s3 and you want to join it and filter some data and then write it to snowflake and um this is a batch job this is a finite batch job you're starting and and flink will execute this in a streaming fashion so it will just um start reading the files in s3 stream them through the join operators and whatever other operators you have and then um load them into snowflake and once it's done done reading the files it will shut down and the job will be done okay this is so also kind of treating batches a special case of streaming correct yes yeah okay okay that keeps things well, i'm assuming that keeps things simpler but we should go deeper into how it processes like like joins how do you do streaming joins what's what's flink's notion of that um if you're if you if you know that you're processing a finite stream you can do more optimizations um than when you're processing an infinite stream so if you're doing batch processing you have a finite stream so you know that you can write all your data on disk you will be able to assuming that you have like sufficient disk space you can always assume that you're able to consume the entire data set write it to disk do some operation and then continue with the processing in um in the streaming world that's not possible you want like low latency so you cannot and like data is it will never stop so you, your disk will just um run full at some point um so if you're doing if you're doing a batch join and you know that your data set is finite you can um be more efficient because you can load your entire data set um into memory or into on on the disk and then for example sort it 
on disk and then um do like a sort merge join um of the data you cannot do that in streaming because you cannot sort something that never finishes yeah you um, have to assume and, streams are infinite so you can't exactly possibly and, sort them. yeah yeah and what we are doing in sql is that we're using windows if you need something to be finite so if you if you want to chunk your data into um daily batches in the stream processor then you can do um a daily window so you um you collect data for an entire day and only after a day you um do some analysis based on the this one day worth of data and there's like many like t different types of windows so you can do these uh, what we call like tumbling window where there's where they're just discrete windows like for every hour there's a window if you do hourly windows or you can do sliding windows where there is like every 10 minutes you're triggering a new window and the windows are like one hour long so they're like interleaved then you can do session windows that are dynamic and you can do any kind of custom window um based on your needs um so that's pretty flexible okay you can custom define them i didn't know that yes yes so they're um so the windowing api and flink so flink has a built-in windowing operator that um you can customize so I think a typical customization is that um, you use a standard window, let's say a sliding window, but you trigger it free more frequently. So theoretically, by default, you trigger the window um, when the hour is completed, if you're doing like an hourly window. But you could do something where you trigger the window every 10 minutes and then have like a final trigger after the full hour. And this way you can um, get results faster so you can basically show your user this is the data of the current hour it's in progress and then at some point you can tell your user this is the finished hour <laughs> like this is the this is the final count or aggregation or whatever i'm doing um of my data and then okay. there's like even more complexity to this um and this is about handling of time because um when you're building a window You can do windows based on count of your data. You can also say like for every 1000 elements, I want to do some analysis, but I'm not, I think, I don't think many users do that. Most of the users do windows based on time. And um, if you're doing that, then you have to cope with the nature of time and um, out of <laughs> orderness. <laughs> so yeah. um, imagine your data is coming from mobile phones and your users are sometimes in the underground or in an airplane or whatever they are in the countryside and they have spotty reception. So yeah. your events will not always, like when your user is liking stuff on Instagram, um, your likes will not um, arrive always um, when the user is clicking the button. The likes might arrive like five minutes later when the mobile phone has a reception again. Yeah, and if you've got a three-minute window, that's a problem. Exactly. So, yeah. um, I mean, it depends what you're doing. So Flink has a lot of um, functionality for handling this exact use case. So um, Flink has a um, concept that is called event time. So you can tell the engine that in your data, some field, like one field is the time at which the event has happened. So imagine your your Instagram user that is currently on an airplane is doing likes. Whenever you click the like button, um, you assign the timestamp of the phone 
of the user to this event. Now yeah. the user is landing two hours later and these events will arrive with a two hour delay. But the event time is the time when the event has happened, not the time when the data is arriving in Flink. Yeah. And then you can, um, if this window is still open, like still available, you can assign this to the right window or you have some custom logic that is handling late, late, late events. So like events you, that are arriving out of order. So we're saying if you had a window that was a day long, then mm -hmm. this is a non-issue. But if it's an hour long, you've already closed that window, shipped it off and said those are the results, right? Yeah. So how do you backfill that with the old data? Um, so that's something that Flink cannot solve. It gives you the means to solve it, but it doesn't solve it for you in a magic way. So this is something that you have to solve as the author of a Flink shop. So um, the window operator um, has um, multiple approaches. Um, let's say the one approach is that you have like a site output, like a special stream where late events are sent to. And um, then you do then you run some custom code that is handling these late events. So imagine you're do, you're inserting these um, hourly aggregates of the number of likes, whatever per country or so, mm. um, into uh, Snowflake. Then you could run a query in this special code that is updating the aggregate. So you know oh, okay. that this you know that the that the count from two hours ago is already closed. But you get this information that there is one last user and you just update the count by one in Snowflake. So, uh, so your custom code is literally just running update statistics where time yeah. slot equals. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because, I mean, the the, the, the problem, the trade of um, when, when working with out-of-order um, events or like late arrivals is always latency. So you don't want... So theoretically, you could keep your hourly windows. And this is actually what happens in Flink. So um, if you do hourly windows with event time in Flink, then Flink will keep multiple of these windows in its local state. And um, because it's basically collecting data for multiple hours at the same time. And um, only every now and then Flink decides that um, a window is um, done and it, it's closed and then it's doing its computation on the window data and sends the result downstream um okay so there, there so you comes can, a you, point you, where you, you say to the yeah. user either you have to figure out a special way to handle this or we can just drop it on the floor and say it's yes. too late yeah okay yes so um and this is all configurable configurable by the user so you can configure how long after a window has been um closed you want to still keep it in case of late arrivals and you can also define how Flink decides when a, a window is ready to be closed. Because that's another set of issues. Um, like how does, if you're building hourly windows, how do you, how does Flink know when the hour is complete when it's working on event time? And um, for that, it's using a concept called watermarks, okay. um, like low watermarks. And um, every source in Flink is emitting these watermark events into the stream. And um, these are special records that you cannot immediately see when you're implementing your data flow. But um, they allow you to track event time 
across your operators. So um, let's say in the Instagram like example with uh, event time, at some point, um, the the source that is um, produced, like that where you're consuming these events from in Flink, like these like events from a Kafka topic, will decide how far the time has progressed. So right. um, it will it will basically say, um, based on the data that I've seen so far, I think that 2 p.m. has passed now. Right. Yeah. So I've you seen can, at least one event from 2 p.m., so it must be later than that. Exactly. This is one approach. So you can say um, you basically just follow, you follow the um, highest time you've seen, and that's basically your virtual clock. What people typically do is that you add some lag to this. So you... Um, you say, I saw an event for 2 p.m., but I'm actually assuming um, I'm like I'm just reducing like half an hour from this, subtracting half an hour from this. So that the time, this event time is always lagging a bit behind, like for half an hour it's lagging behind, so that you can um, account for late arrivals. So if you know that you're able, that you're willing and able to tolerate up to half an hour for late events, um, then you define your watermark so that it's always trailing for half an hour of the event right, time yeah. that you're tracking. This is reminding me of meetups that say they're going to start at seven, but they have to start at seven fifteen because no one shows up till seven. Yes, exactly. Like yeah, yeah everybody who, who has ever hosted a party at home knows that you cannot start. Yeah, <laughs> you don't start on the top. Yeah. Yeah. And so another um, approach that you can do here is, for example. Um, that you build like a histogram of the distribution of um, how late events are arriving. And then you say, I want my watermarks to um, to be covering 95% of the events or 99% uh, yeah. of the events or whatever. And you're willing to tolerate like 1% loss or you're willing to handle like 1% of late events um, using some custom logic. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that leads naturally into um, if that's how you deal with user space being unexpected in its in its reliability, how do you deal with uh, machine space being unreliable? What happens if my if I'm Netflix and my 250 gigabytes of state crash and die? What's going on internally there? Yeah. Um. So in so. Let's say the 250 gigabytes of state that Netflix is maintaining are actually one-hour windows. So to just stick to to the example, sure. um, so you're you're so big because you're Netflix that your <laughs> that your state is 250 gigabytes, and um, if any machine is failing, Flink will um, restore the state from the latest checkpoint. So Flink is periodically creating um, checkpoints that contain the state of all operators in your data flow graph. So um, let's say we we have a Kafka source. The state in the Kafka source is the, um, the names of all the um, partitions and topics you're subscribed to and the offset of the latest message that you've read. And then you have this window operator and there 
it's all the data that is in the windows. So it's either some aggregate per hour or it's all the data from the hour. And then there is a sync, let's say again, Kafka sync. Um, this might also store some state if you're using exactly once Kafka sync. And um, if you're in, um, you configure a checkpointing interval, which means um, at this interval, Flink is making a backup of the state um, to some reliable storage outside of Flink. Um, typically these days, it's something like S3 or whatever your cloud provider is offering, um, like a cheap, durable storage um, where you're uploading your checkpoints to. So um, in our example, we could configure something like checkpoint every five minutes. So we will um, every five minutes upload the state um, of all the operators in particular, these 250 gigabytes of data um, from the window operator um, to S3. And um, yeah. Okay. Does that mean it's snapshotting 250 gigabytes every five minutes or is it incremental? Is it clever than that? Yeah, it's clever. So it supports <laughs> increment, it, it supports incremental checkpoints um, that only contain the diff from the last checkpoint. Okay. And if that's, so what happens when that goes wrong? If I've got one of your 30 operator pipelines, maybe running across 60 machines, and one of them in the middle dies. I'm just so trying to think how you coordinate all those different snapshots so that you yeah. get everything and don't reprocess something twice. Um, so um, you will reprocess data twice in case of a failure, but you won't count data twice. You won't have duplicates. Um, this is the reason why Flink is considered... or. We call it exactly once stream processing framework. So it is exactly once with respect to state. It's not, yeah, let's say it's exactly once um, with respect to state, but it might still process data multiple times. So um, it, if a single operator in your Flink pipeline fails, it will reset the entire pipeline to the last successful checkpoint. Um, there is an optimization, it's called local recovery in Flink, that um, the only on the failed machine you have to re-download the state. On the other machines, you can just reuse the files that are still on your local file system. So the checkpointing okay. files are available on your local disk, so the recovery is not as painful as it sounds. Like you don't need to re-download 250 gigs. I don't know, you're downloading like 15 gigs or whatever of that failed machine. Um, and then you can continue processing. So the the trick how we achieve exactly one semantics is the way we create these checkpoints. So um, the we are creating these checkpoints um, using a distributed snapshotting mechanism. So we are not just stupidly uploading the current whatever data we have on each operator and this message, like when we are uploading, might be off, right? So you, you might have some messages that are in between and processed multiple times or whatever. We can guarantee that this checkpoint is consistent um, across the data. So how this works is that we are um, inserting um, a special event into the stream that is called the checkpoint barrier. So if you have the Kafka source, window operator, and sync, then it triggers on all the source instances 
uh, via an RPC message, it just says, now do a checkpoint. So the source will um, upload its state to S3, and then it will, um, so the, the source will get this message, it will stop processing, it will up upload its state, then it will emit a special record downstream that says, here's the checkpoint, and then it will continue processing. So then in the in the output of the source, like you consider like imagine a queue um and like there's regular events, then there is a checkpoint event, and then there's regular events again. And this checkpoint event will travel downstream to the join operator. Now the join operator um will have multiple inputs, right? You have you have this as a distributed um graph, and there's multiple sources, and the join operator will have to wait. So it will receive a, um, a checkpoint barrier on once on one of the input channels, and then it will stop accepting new data from this input channel, and it waits until it has received the checkpoint barrier from all the input channels. This is called um, the alignment phase of a checkpoint. And right. once it has received the barrier from all the inputs, it will create, again, a copy of the state of this operator. In this case, it will upload 250 gigabytes of state, and then the barrier is traveling through the system downstream to the next operator, which will repeat this until we reach the sink. And once we've backed up the state of the sink, um, the checkpoint is conceptually closed. Like we have created a consistent copy of all our state at this particular point in time. And records are not allowed to overtake these checkpoint barriers. And because of that, we... Even if we, if we, so if we have a failure now, we reset the Kafka sources to their offset that was at, was there at the time of the checkpoint and the contents of the window operator also to exactly the same point in time. So we will reset the state and the data. And this is in line. And this is how we can guarantee that we are not counting twice. So if you, if your window operator is counting the number of records, we reset the counter to the right count at the time of this particular offset of the Kafka sources. So we will replay the data from Kafka and the counter will go back a little bit and then we will recount and continue processing after we, we recovered from the failure. Right. So if I'm further down the stream in the operator pipeline, I'm going to get, hey, it's time to do checkpoint number three and I do checkpoint number three and I do checkpoint number three and I get some more rows. And then presumably there's another message that says, hey, I crashed. We're all going back to checkpoint three and I'm going to resend you rows from that point. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That I can and, see how that makes the whole system consistent with respect to checkpoints. And there is, um, so these checkpoints are done asynchronously. So um, these 250 gigabytes of state in our window are, of course, our problem child that we need to give special treatment. <laughs> and what Flink is doing for the special treatment is that it will, um, when you're using, actually it's in, in the RocksDB on disk state backend and also in the memory-based state backend, it will create only a, let's say, snapshot of the data, like a, a few of the data at that point in time, and it will continue with the processing and upload the data to S3 in the background. So you okay. you can actually, the barrier can actually flow through the system quite quickly. It is only necessary for making sure that we are creating these state snapshots at the right point in time. And then in the background, um, there will be upload processes um, sending the files to S3. And only when the barrier has re uh, reached all the things, we need to wait that also all the asynchronous uploads that are happening are also finished. And only then the checkpoint is considered complete. And then 
um, we can use it for recovery. So if right. we are failing at any point in time, we just always go back to the last successfully completed checkpoint. So at that point, you could nuke the cluster, reboot it, and expect to get back to where you were. Exactly. Yes. Okay. And um, so this is the mechanism that Flink is using internally for um, recovery, but there's also user-managed checkpoints, and they are called safe points. So you can also, as a user, say, um, you basically do like uh, use the CLI or the REST API or whatever to trigger a safe point. So you can also, as a user, say, hey, create me a copy of my state right now and write it um, to this directory. And um, then you can basically trigger a save point, like you're triggering a checkpoint out of band. So you're, you're creating a special um, copy of your state and store it somewhere. And this allows you to go back in time. So if you, um, if you create these save points like once a day and you realize that there was a bug in my code, yeah. Then you can go back and say, okay, I'm replaying the, the um, save point from three days ago that fixes the bug. And then with event time, you will actually get exactly the same result. Even like you're, It's like stream processing. It's supposed to be real time, but you can use it also for historical reprocessing or backfill. Yeah, go back to that point in time. So yeah. presumably this gets used a lot when people are de- just before people are deploying on a Friday afternoon. Yeah, for this, um, exactly for this, it's useful. It's also useful if you want to migrate your state um, from one cluster to another. So imagine, oh. um, so I don't know. Yeah, you just need to change your infrastructure for whatever reason. You can create a save point and restore the save point on an entirely different hardware. Or if you want to change the Flink version, like there's a new bug fix release, um, you create a save point um, and then you restore um, with the fixed flink version and you can even use that to fix your job so if you're if you if you have a bug in your code and you want to fix it you can um restore with a different save point okay so you you do the whole thing along with um a job uh, is job the right terminology actually yes in flink yeah we try to um change the name to application like stream application but throughout the code and the documentation and in people's mind so it's both job or application right okay okay so we're getting into what the developer experience is like for this then maintaining it but but we've mostly been talking about as though this is a sql only world yeah yeah it's not tell me tell me tell me about the hierarchy of ways i can interact with flink Mm -hmm. um so there is um two big apis the sql api and the data stream, Java, Scala, Kotlin, whatever, JVM API. Um, and the common ground, I would say, is the data stream API that um, that allows you to do high-level and low-level operations. So you can... Um, define your sources in Java. So you just define like a Kafka source and a Debezium source and a Pulsar source. And then you define like a window operator and then um, you sync in Java and you can like run your own code, of course, in like the maps and filters and so on. Um, You can go one level down from that and use um, what we call the process function in Flink. And the process function allows you to 
access state directly. So you can say, I have a list state or a map state or a value state. So that's basically like a Java field in your, in your code. But this field is backed by the state backend. So you can store terabytes of data in this field, even if your machine only has like 16 gigs of RAM or so. Because the, the data that you put into this list, for example, is actually written into RocksDB. And RocksDB means it's stored in a special file format uh, on your local SSD, ideally. Um, and if you're putting this into this um, state abstraction in the Java API, Flink will also checkpoint your state. So it will be recovered and it will be exactly once. Like the oh, mechanism okay. that I've described. So the high-level window operator that is available in the data stream API um, is also using these state primitives. And you can access these state primitives in what we call the process function in Flink. And um, another benefit of this process function, like this low-level process function, is that you can um, access also time. So you can access the event time field of every record, like the current timestamp, and you can register um, timer callbacks. So you can say, um, wake me up in 30, 30 minutes, and then I want to close my window or do some kind of whatever. So you can define callbacks, and then when the time has arrived for this callback, um, you get a special method call and you can do stuff, like closing your window, for example. And this, this timer is either based on what we call processing time, like the wall clock real world time, or it's right. based on event time. So even if you're saying 30 sec, uh, whatever, 30 minutes for this timer, it might, the, the system decides when to execute um, this timer. Okay. So I could do something like, um, I'm thinking if I modeled an auction, I could accept bids in, but when I get a message saying the auction has now closed, then all future bids become irrelevant. The window closes at that point. Mm -hmm. Something like that. And this, you, this, like, it's a custom windowing logic. You don't have, you can implement this yourself with the process function. You have all the ingredients you need. You have access to the time of the bids, and you have um, the state, like list state, to store your bids in Flink okay. state. So and, is this what um, people generally do, that they write SQL until they hit something the SQL API doesn't support, and then they break out Java or Scala? Um, it depends. I mean, um, so let me let me finish a thought about the API. So DataStream is like the common API process functions, the low-level API, and SQL is, of course, the high-level API. And you can use the SQL API within the Java program as well. So you can basically say uh, you create your sources in Java and then you just put a SQL string um, to do whatever you want and then you continue in Java. Like you can also mix and match um, the different APIs or you can go full SQL. Like you just use the SQL shell and you create your data sources and um, queries and whatever, everything in SQL. You don't have to touch Java at all. Um, so now there's also uh, extension points in SQL. Like you can do user-defined functions. So besides Ooh, the okay. built-in functions like concat and whatever, average, you can also do, um, you can define your own functions and then you implement them in Java or you can even use Java to delegate to Python or whatever <laughs> language you want. Um, so you can extend Flink SQL. So um what what I see as a pattern for companies building stream processing platforms is that they offer, let's say, business-specific um, user-defined functions 
as part of their streaming platform. Oh, okay. So they, there's a department responsible for shipping a library of things they'd find, everyone would find useful in SQL, that kind of thing. Yeah. No. No. Yeah, okay. okay. Where do people tend to start with Flink? I mean, what's a typical way it gets introduced to a company? Mm. So I think, that, I mean, it depends a bit on... Um, on your skill set, like whether you're a Java developer or whether you're um, a SQL developer and whether you're a lazy Java developer who knows that you can solve the problem <laughs> in SQL, that that's totally fine and makes a ton of sense. Like why? And honestly, I mean, SQL is highly optimized, of course, right? So there's like an optimizer that knows how to um, to do an efficient um, data flow and it uses optimizes, optimized data types and it uses code generation and all kinds of tricks to make this really efficient. So you would would spend a lot of time expressing what you can express in like, 15 minutes of trial and error with uh, SQL, you would probably spend like a day or so in Java to make this really yeah. efficient. So it, it makes a ton of sense for many use cases to use SQL. And you can totally use Flink um, without knowing Java. You just define your um, data sources and things and write your queries, and you can do quite a lot with Flink SQL. So one way of getting started with Flink, if you just want to do SQL, is um, go to the Flink documentation and check out how to use the um, SQL client. Like you start Flink locally, like you just run a bash script that um, brings up a job manager and a task manager instance. And then you start your uh, SQL client, it connects to the job manager, and then you can write your queries um, with it. If you're a Java developer, um, there's a different path that I would recommend. And that is um, you create an a Java project, you add the Flink dependencies to your project. And then um, in your main method, um, you define like the this execution environment of Flink and um, trigger the execution there in your local IDE locally. So it will bring up the same components that you're running on a big 100 machines distributed cluster in your local um, oh, machine. Okay. So you can really run exactly the same code that you're running on the big big cluster also locally. It will bring up a, a job manager thread and it will bring up a task manager thread basically in your machine. Oh, okay. And then... So um, it's not just running like a local client side part of Flink. It's running the whole of Flink. As you wish. So okay. you can, of course, use your developer machine to connect to a Flink cluster and submit your job uh, to a big Flink cluster. But for development, it often, and I mean, if you're just getting started, you're not that sophisticated, you just go and uh, press the run button in your IDE and it will run everything for you. And you can even bring up, you can um, bring up the Flink web UI to uh, investigate what's going on. You can configure checkpointing, you can configure the RoxyB state back and like all of that stuff also runs locally. And if okay. you're a Java developer, that's my recommended way of getting started. It feels like developing against any other library you just um play with the code and uh add like log statements and put breakpoints for your debugger and it's a pretty neat development experience and you can even do like once you've um once you've done once once you're done with the implementation um of your flink job you basically create like a jar out of it and then you upload it to your flink cluster where it gets executed and um you can even do things 
like profiling on your local machine. So if you notice that there's some performance issue potentially on your cluster, you can run it locally again and attach a profiler to see where you're spending most of your CPU cycles. And okay. another another benefit of this, um, it's again advanced use, but you can also use this local execution for um, testing, for integration tests, for example. So if you want to um, make sure that you're not breaking your production code, you can um, run a Flink mini cluster in your um, unit tests to make sure that um, you're not breaking anything. Okay. And can I stub out my MySQL database for just a local static file source? Yes, exactly. Yes. So um, in the Java code, um, basically every, like there's a abstraction called the data stream and a source is producing a data stream. So you can just put this behind a method and then the method is producing or creating a stream um, of whatever you want. So you can just implement like a simple data generator in Java that is producing data that looks like the real data. And on production, you replace it with a Kafka source. Um, For SQL, there is um, a data generator available as a source um so you can specify like basically the schema and the key from the schema the data generator deducts how to generate data for you oh sweet yeah so uh, well i mean you basically find like an integer field and then you say i want to generate positive numbers or something right yeah groovy um i have to ask for this is it any language i like as long as it's the jvm uh yes plus python Oh, okay, there's a Python. Yes, so there's um, a Python um, API as well for Flink that is fairly close to the SQL API or like SQL abstraction. Um, so like between um, Flink SQL and the data stream API is something called the table API. And that's a Java way of saying SQL, basically. So you can do like, uh, select where, whatever in Java. Um, and I think that the Python API is similar to that. And of course you can run Python code. So you can also do a, um, transformation with regular Python code or an aggregation, uh, as regular Python code in okay. your user-defined function. Another, is it feature parity or does it lag behind the Java version or has it, or has it diverged? <laughs> yeah, I would say it has diverged. Yes. Okay. So I think it, I'm not 100% sure. <clears throat> I have little experience with it, but um, it is um, fairly close to the SQL API, like the table API. Okay. Okay. I need to go and check it out then. On Do which it. note, I just head to flink.org, right? Uh, flink.apache.org. Flink. So it's part of the Apache Software Foundation. That saves me asking you what the licensing terms are. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Robert, thanks very much for taking me through all that. And I will see you again. Cheers. Yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Robert, thanks again. I have to say, Robert's inspired me. Since we recorded that conversation, I've started using Flink in anger on some analytics stuff that I've been working on. Maybe at some point I'll show you. Maybe we'll do some coding videos for YouTube eventually. Something I'd like to do, time allowing. Another thing I'd like to do, and I think this time will allow, is a deep dive on more Apache projects. We've covered a few of them already on Developer Voices. Long term, I think we'd like to cover a lot more because there are lots of interesting ones. So if there's a particular Apache project you think I should be looking at, please let me know in the comments. On the topic of comments, if you've enjoyed this episode or found it useful, 
please take a moment to click like or share or rate or review, whichever feedback-ish kind of buttons the platform you're listening to this on offers. Developer Voices is available on YouTube, Spotify, on Apple, all the usual podcasting places. They all have different buttons. Please go and find one. I am looking for your feedback on all of them. In fact, I might have some of that feedback data traveling through Flink just between you and me. So why not give me some more datums to run through? On which note, I think it's time for me to leave you and for both of us to get back to the keyboard. I've been your host, Chris Jenkins. This has been Developer Voices with Robert Metzger. Thank you for listening.